Chapter forty eight of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter forty eight. Every man must defend himself. It was only right in Jeremy Stickles, and of the simplest common sense, that he would not tell before our girls what the result of his journey was. But he led me aside in the course of the evening, and told me all about it saying that I knew as well as he did that it was not woman's business. This I took as it was meant, for a gentle caution that Lorna, whom he had not seen as yet, must not be informed of any of his doings. Herein I quite agreed with him, not only for his furtherance, but because I always think that women, of whatever mind, are best when least they meddle with things that appertain to men. Master Stickles complained that the weather had been against him bitterly, closing all the roads around him, even as it had done with us. It had taken him eight days, he said, to get from Exeter to Plymouth, whither he found that most of the troops had been drafted off from Exeter. When all were told, there was but a battalion of one of the King's horse regiments and two companies of foot soldiers, and their commanders had orders, later than the date of Jeremy's commission, on no account to quit the southern coast and march inland. Therefore, although they would gladly have come for a brush with the celebrated dunes, it was more than they durst attempt in the face of their instructions. However, they spared him a single trooper, as a companion of the road, and to prove to the justices of the county, and the Lord Lieutenant, that he had their approval. To these authorities Master Stickles now was forced to address himself, although he would rather have had one trooper than a score from the very best trained bands. For these trained bands had afforded very good soldiers in the time of the civil wars, and for some years afterwards, but now their discipline was gone, and the younger generation had seen no real fighting. Each would have his own opinion, and would want to argue it, and if he were not allowed, he went about his duty in such a temper as to prove that his own way was the best. Neither was this the worst of it, for Jeremy made no doubt but what, if he could only get the militia to hold out in force, he might manage, with the help of his own men, to force the stronghold of the enemy, but the truth was that the officers, knowing how hard it would be to collect their men at that time of the year, and in that state of the weather, began with one accord to make every possible excuse and especially they pressed this point, that Bagworthy was not in their county, the Devonshire people affirming vehemently that it lay in the shire of Somerset, and the Somersetshire folk averring, even with imprecations, that it lay in Devonshire. Now I believe the truth to be that the boundary of the two counties, as well as of Oar and Brendan parishes, is defined by the Bagworthy River, so that the disputants on both sides were both right and wrong. Upon this, Master Stickles suggested, and as I thought very sensibly, that the two counties should unite, and equally contribute to the extirpation of this pest, which shamed and injured them both alike. But hence arose another difficulty, for the men of Devon said they would march when Somerset had taken the field, and the sons of Somerset replied that indeed they were quite ready, but what were their cousins of Devonshire doing? And so it came to pass that the King's Commissioner returned without any army whatever, but with promise of two hundred men when the roads should be more passable. And meanwhile, what were we to do, abandoned as we were to the mercies of the dunes with only our own hands to help us? And herein I grieved at my own folly in having let Tom Faggus go, whose wit and courage would have been worth at least half a dozen men to us. Upon this matter I held long counsel with my good friend Stickles, telling him all about Lorna's presence, and what I knew of her history. He agreed with me that we could not hope to escape an attack from the outlaws, and the more especially now that they knew himself to be returned to us. 
Also he praised me for my forethought in having threshed out all our corn, and hidden the produce in such a manner that they were not likely to find it. Furthermore, he recommended that all the entrances to the house should at once be strengthened, and a watch must be maintained at night, and he thought it wiser that I should go, late as it was, to Lynmouth, if a horse could pass the valley, and fetch every one of his mounted troopers who might now be quartered there. Also, if any men of courage, though capable only of handling a pitchfork, could be found in the neighbourhood, I was to try to summon them. But our district is so thinly peopled that I had little faith in this. However, my errand was given me, and I set forth upon it, for John Fry was afraid of the waters. Knowing how fiercely the floods were out, I resolved to travel the higher road by Cosgate and through Countersbury. Therefore I swam my horse through the Lynn at the ford below our house, where sometimes you may step across, and thence galloped up and along the hills. I could see all the inland valleys ribboned with broad waters, and in every winding crook the banks of snow that fed them, while on my right the turbid sea was flaked with April showers. But when I descended the hill towards Lynmouth, I feared that my journey was all in vain, for the East Lynn, which is our river, was ramping and roaring frightfully, lashing whole trunks of trees on the rocks and rending them and grinding them, and into it rushed from the opposite side a torrent even madder, upsetting what it came to aid, shattering wave with boiling billow and scattering wrath with fury. It was certain death to attempt the passage, and the little wooden footbridge had been carried away long ago and the men I was seeking must be, of course, on the other side of this deluge, for on my side there was not a single house. I followed the bank of the flood to the beach, some two or three hundred yards below, and there had the luck to see Will Watcombe on the opposite side, corking an old boat. Though I could not make him hear a word from the deafening roar of the torrent, I got him to understand at last that I wanted to cross over. Upon this he fetched another man, and the two of them launched a boat, and paddling well out to sea, fetched round the mouth of the frantic river. The other man proved to be Stickle's chief mate, and so he went back and fetched his comrades, bringing their weapons but leaving their horses behind. As it happened, there were but four of them. However, to have even these was a help, and I started again at full speed for my home, for the men must follow afoot and cross our river high up on the moorland. This took them a long way round, and the track was rather bad to find and the sky already darkening, so that I arrived at Plover's Barrows more than two hours before them. But they had done a sagacious thing, which is well worth the delay, for by hoisting their flag upon the hill they fetched the two watchmen from the foreland and added them to their number. It was lucky that I came home so soon, for I found the house in a great commotion, and all the women trembling. When I asked what the matter was, Lorna, who seemed the most self-possessed, answered that it was all her fault, for she alone had frightened them and this in the following manner. She had stolen out to the garden towards dusk, to watch some favourite hyacinths just pushing up like a baby's teeth, and just attracting the fatal notice of a great house-snail at night-time. Lorna at last had discovered the glutton, and was bearing him off in triumph to the tribunal of the ducks, when she descried two glittering eyes glaring at her steadfastly from the elder-bush beyond the stream. The elder was smoothing its wrinkled leaves, being at least two months behind time and among them this calm, cruel face appeared, and she knew it was the face of Carver Doone. The maiden, although so used to terror, as she told me once before, lost all presence of mind hereat, and could neither shriek nor fly, but only gaze as if bewitched. Then Carver Doone, with his deadly smile, gloating upon her horror, lifted his long gun and pointed full at Lorna's heart. In vain she strove to turn away. Fright had stricken her stiff as stone, 
with the inborn love of life she tried to cover the vital part wherein the winged death must lodge for she knew carver's certain aim but her hands hung numbed and heavy in nothing but her eyes was life with no sign of pity in his face no quiver of relenting but a well-pleased grin at all the charming palsy of his victim carver doon lowered inch by inch the muzzle of his gun when it pointed to the ground between her delicate arched insteps he pulled the trigger and the bullet flung the mould all over her it was a refinement of bullying for which i swore to god that night upon my knees in secret that i would smite down carver doon or else he should smite me down base beast what largest humanity or what dreams of divinity could make a man put up with this my darling the loveliest and most harmless in the world of maidens fell away on a bank of grass and wept at her own cowardice and trembled and wondered where i was and what i would think of this good god what could i think of it she overrated my slow nature to admit the question while she leaned there quite unable yet to save herself carver came to the brink of the flood which alone was between them and then he stroked his jet-black beard and waited for lorna to begin very likely he thought that she would thank him for his kindness to her but she was now recovering the power of her nimble limbs and ready to be off like hope and wonder at her own cowardice i have spared you this time he said in his deep calm voice only because it suits my plans and i never yield to temper but unless you come back to-morrow pure and with all you took away and teach me to destroy that fool who has destroyed himself for you your death is here your death is here where it has long been waiting although his gun was empty he struck the breech of it with his finger and then he turned away not deigning even once to look back again and lorna saw his giant figure striding across the meadowland as if the rids were nobodies and he the proper owner both mother and i were greatly hurt at hearing of this insolence for we had owned that meadow from a time of the great alfred and even when that good king lay in the isle of athelney he had a rid along with him now i spoke to lorna gently seeing how much she had been tried and i praised her for her courage in not having run away when she was so unable and my darling was pleased with this and smiled upon me for saying it though she knew right well that in this matter my judgment was not impartial but you may take this as a general rule that a woman likes praise from the man whom she loves and cannot stop always to balance it now expecting a sharp attack that night when jeremy stickles the more expected after the words of carver which seemed to be meant to mislead us we prepared a great quantity of knuckles of pork and a ham in full cut and a fillet of hung mutton for we would almost surrender rather than keep our garrison hungry and all our men were exceedingly brave and counted their rounds of the house in half pints before the maidens went to bed lorna made a remark which seemed to me a very clever one and then i wondered how on earth it had never occurred to me before but first she had done a thing which i could not in the least approve of for she had gone up to my mother and thrown herself in her arms and begged to be allowed to return to glen doone my child are you unhappy here mother asked her very gently for she had begun to regard her now as a daughter of her own oh no too happy by far too happy mrs ridd i never knew rest or peace before or met with real kindness but i cannot be so ungrateful i cannot be so wicked as to bring you all into deadly peril for my sake alone let me go you must not pay this great price for my happiness dear child we are paying no price at all replied my mother embracing her we are not threatened for your sake only ask john he will tell you he knows every bit about politics and this is a political matter 
dear mother was rather proud in her heart as well as terribly frightened at the importance now accruing to plovers barrow's farm and she often declared that it would be as famous in history as the rye house or the mill tub or even the great black box in which she was a firm believer and even my knowledge of politics could not move her upon that matter such things had happened before she would say shaking her head with its wisdom and why might they not happen again women would be women and men would be men to the end of the chapter and if she had been in lucy waters place she would keep it quiet as she had done and then she would look around for fear lest either of her daughters had heard her but now can you give me any reason why it may not have been so you are so fearfully positive john just as men always are no i used to say i can give you no reason why it may not have been so mother but the question is if it was so or not rather than what it might have been and i think it is pretty good proof against it that what nine men of every ten in england would only too gladly believe if true is nevertheless kept dark from them there you are john mother would reply all about men and not a single word about women if you had any argument at all you would own that marriage is a question upon which women are the best judges oh i would groan in my spirit and go leaving my dearest mother quite sure that now at last she must have convinced me but if mother had known that jeremy stickles was working against the black box and its issue i doubt whether he would have fared so well even though he was a visitor however she knew that something was doing and something of importance and she trusted in god for the rest of it only she used to tell me very seriously of an evening the very least they can give you dear john is a coat of arms be sure you take nothing less dear and the farm can well support it but lo i have left lorna ever so long anxious to consult me upon political matters she came to me and her eyes alone asked a hundred questions which i rather had answered upon her lips than troubled her pretty ears with them therefore i told her nothing at all save that the attack if any should be would not be made on her account and that if she should hear by any chance a trifle of noise in the night she was to wrap the clothes around her and shut her beautiful eyes again on no account whatever she did was she to go to the window she liked my expression about her eyes and promised to do the very best she could and then she crept so very close that i needs must have her closer with her head on my breast and she asked can't you keep out of this fight john my own one i answered gazing through the long black lashes at the depths of radiant love i believe there will be nothing but what there is i must see out shall i tell you what i think john it is only a fancy of mine and perhaps it is not worth telling let us have it dear by all means you know so much about their ways what i believe is this john you know how high the rivers are higher than ever they were before and twice as high you have told me i believe that glen Doone is flooded and all the houses under water you little witch i answered what a fool i must be not to think of it of course it is it must be the torrent from all the bagworthy forest and all the valleys above it and the great drifts in the glen itself never could have outlet down my famous water-slide the valley must be under water twenty feet at least well if ever there was a fool i am here for not having thought of it i remember once before said lorna reckoning on her fingers when there was heavy rain all through the autumn and winter five or it may be six years ago the river came down with such a rush that the water was two feet deep in our rooms and we all had to camp by the cliff edge but you think that the floods are higher now i believe i heard you say john i don't think about it my treasure i answered you may trust me for understanding floods after our work at tiverton and i know that the deluge in all our valleys is such that no living man can remember neither will ever behold again 
consider three months of snow 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 and a fortnight of rain on the top of it and all to be drained in a few days away and great barricades of ice still in the rivers blocking them up and ponding them you may take my word for it mistress lorna that your pretty bower is six feet deep well my bower has served its time said lorna blushing as she remembered all that had happened there and my bower now is here john but i am so sorry to think of all the poor women flooded out of their houses and sheltering in the snowdrifts however there is one good of it they cannot send many men against us with all this trouble upon them you are right i replied how clever you are and that is why there were only three to cut off master stickles and now we shall beat them i make no doubt even if they come at all and i defy them to fire the house the thatch is too wet for burning we sent all the women to bed quite early except gwenny carfax and our old betty these two we allowed to stay up because they might be useful to us if they could keep from quarrelling for my part i had little fear after what lorna had told me as to the result of the combat it was not likely that the dunes could bring more than eight or ten men against us while their homes were in such danger and to meet these we had eight good men including jeremy and myself all well armed and resolute besides our three farm servants and the parish clerk and the shoemaker these five could not be trusted much for any valiant conduct although they spoke very confidently over their cans of cider neither were their weapons fitted for much execution unless it were at close quarters which they would be likely to avoid bill dads had a sickle jem slocum a flail the cobbler had borrowed the constable's staff for the constable would not attend because there was no warrant and the parish clerk had brought his pitch-pipe which was enough to break any man's head but john fry of course had his blunderbuss loaded with tin-tacks and marbles and more likely to kill the man who discharged it than any other person but we knew that john had it only for show and to describe its qualities now it was my great desire and my chiefest hope to come across carver doon that night and settle the score between us not by any shot in the dark but by a conflict man to man and yet since i came to full-grown power i had never met any one whom i could not play teetotum with but now at last i had found a man whose strength was not to be laughed at i could guess it in his face i could tell it in his arms i could see it in his stride and gait which more than all the rest betray the substance of a man and being so well used to wrestling and to judge antagonists i felt that here if anywhere i had found my match therefore i was not content to abide within the house or go the rounds with the troopers but betook myself to the rickyard knowing that the dunes were likely to begin their onset there for they had a pleasant custom when they visited farmhouses of lighting themselves towards picking up anything they wanted or stabbing the inhabitants by first creating a blaze in the rickyard and though our ricks were all now of mere straw except indeed two of prime clover hay and although on the top they were so wet that no firebrands might hurt them i was both unwilling to have them burned and fearful that they might kindle if well roused up with fire upon the windward side by the by these dunes had got the worst of this pleasant trick one time for happening to fire the ricks of a lonely farm called yeanworthy not far above glenthorne they approached the house to get people's goods and to enjoy their terror the master of the farm was lately dead and had left inside the clock-case loaded the great long gun wherewith he had used to sport at the ducks and the geese on the shore now widow fisher took out this gun and not caring much what became of her for she had loved her husband dearly she laid it upon the window-sill which looked upon the rickyard and she backed up the butt with a chest of oak jaws and she opened the window a little back and let the muzzle out on the slope 
Presently five or six fine young dunes came dancing a reel, as their manner was, betwixt her and the flaming rick, upon which she pulled the trigger with all the force of her thumb, and a quarter of a pound of duck-shot went out with a blaze on the dancers. You may suppose what their dancing was, and their reeling now changed to staggering, and their music none of the sweetest. One of them fell into the rick, and was burned, and buried in a ditch next day, but the others were set upon their horses, and carried home on a path of blood. And strange to say, they never avenged this very dreadful injury, but having heard that a woman had fired this desperate shot among them, they said that she ought to be a doon, and inquired how old she was. Now I had not been so very long waiting in our mow-yard, with my best gun ready and a big club by me, before a heaviness of sleep began to creep upon me. The flow of water was in my ears, and in my eyes a hazy spreading, and upon my brain a closure, as a cobbler sows a vamp up. So I leaned back in the clover-rick, and the dust of the seed and the smell came round me without any trouble, and I dozed about Lorna just once or twice, and what she had said about new-mown hay. And then back went my head, and my chin went up, and if ever a man was blessed with slumber, down it came upon me, and away went I into it. Now this was very vile of me, and against all good resolutions, even such as I would have sworn to an hour ago or less. But if you had been in the water as I had, I and had long fight with it after a good day's work, and then great anxiety afterwards, and brain-work, which is not fair for me, and upon that a stout supper, mayhap you would not be so hard on my sleep, though you felt it your duty to wake me. End of chapter 48 Read by Landy in Sydney, Australia, November 2008.